Okay. Yeah, so the Shemi Shmuel will start with Mitzorah. We will go back to Va'era, and then we will learn a few pieces from the life of the Kloisenberger Rebbe that illustrate the principles that we're learning here. Okay, so Parsha's Mitzorah teaches us about the Tahara process of the Mitzorah. After he's been through everything he's been through that we saw last week, and you have to really visualize it. The Talmud Rebbe once really encouraged us to visualize what the Mitzorah went through, like almost transporting it to our days. Okay, and he says one of the reasons why we don't have tzaras nowadays is we wouldn't have the fortitude to stand up to going through that process. Okay, a guy's taking a shower in the morning, singing a little opera, sees something weird on his arm. All right, he goes out, he shows it to his wife. I don't know, you think I should go to a doctor? She says, no, I think you should call a coin. Oh man, you know, so he has to call up work and he has to call, I can't come in today, you sick? I mean, kind of, like, you go to a doctor? Well, not really. Well, I'm, I'm going to see a coin. Ah, see a coin. The coin drives up in his coin mobile. Everybody in the neighborhood's crushing around your house, right, to see what's going to be. And, you know, either he locks them up there for a while, and you're a week out of work, you know, with everybody wondering what's happening. Eventually, he says, Tommy, and you've got to pack up your stuff, and you've got to go to the edge of town, set up a little tent, your clothes ripped, your hair unkempt, you can't be in touch with anybody, you wander around going, Tome, 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 Tome. There would be YouTube videos of this everywhere. Schools doing trips to see a genuine Mitzorah, you know, if we learn the parasha, let's show you one. And uh, everybody knows, right, and he has to go through this till he comes to the coin, and he does his carbonus and all these things, and then he can become Tahar. But this is a real ego-crushing experience. As part of the tahara, we find these interesting ingredients. Okay, now the ingredients are agudat ezov. Ezov, from the research I've done, is really what we call zatar. Right, that which you dip your pita in. It's more formally known as like wild oregano. It grows all around the Middle East. And it's a very, very low shrub. Okay? That's always what it represents throughout Tanakh. Right? It appears in many, many places, the Ezov. We have Shnitolat. We have wool, which is dyed red from a dye which is extracted from a worm. Okay? Also called Tolat Shani, sometimes Shnitolat. And we have a piece of cedar wood, Eitz Erez. Okay? This is a very interesting combination. And obviously, right, we, we think, okay, it's some kind of like magic ingredients or something like this. Everything has a lesson. We can see the contrast between the Eitz Erez and the Ezov. The Eitz Erez, again, throughout Tanakh, always represents that which is tall, perhaps haughty, right? The Arze Halavanon, very tall, impressive trees. So we have, these are our three ingredients. So the Shemi Shmuel explains it this way. He says, it's interesting that these are some of the same ingredients that we find with the um, paraduma, right, for the tahara, which comes from death. And at Pesach Mitzrayim, one of the hard things to wrap our heads around is that the first Pesach, that Pesach wasn't just a night that was different from all the nights, that was a Pesach that was different from all other Pesachs, right? There were things that were done then that we don't do now. For example, 
taking a zov, taking oregano, dipping it in the blood of the Pesach, and putting that dam on the mezuzah and the mashkov. Okay, that was done with a zov. Why? Why didn't they use a paintbrush? Why a zov particularly there? So we'll have to see the connection between them. And why is it in Pesach you don't need the Eitz Erez and the Shnitalat, and here you do. So Rashi explains the symbolism. He says, very simple. He says, Chavetz Chaim expresses this a lot in his Sefer, that one of the roots of someone who speaks Lashon Hara is gaiva, is arrogance. It means you feel entitled to express opinions about other people. You're a judge. You're the one who's saying what this guy did is bad. You see what this, I know why this person did this, etc., etc. So therefore, the Lashon Hara teller, by definition, was arrogant. So he has to lower himself like the Azov. Now, he says, why is it that he still needs this? This gentleman that went through this whole process we said that process brings him to humility. And the tzarat wouldn't go away if he didn't do tshuva. So why are we rubbing in his face, hey, you are arrogant like the thing, you have to be low. He is low. You lowered him. This guy is knocked down to the bottom. Right? Why would you do it? Um, so he says like this. And he's, this theme appears in the Shemesh Mo multiple times. We've spoken about it some before. So much of the guidance the Torah gives us is about balance, right? The Rambam's Shvil HaZohov, which is always important. We do need a certain aspect of the positive type of gaiva, of self-esteem. This is what Chazal explained, is that everybody should say, Bishvili nivraha olam, the world was created for me. Not that I'm a megalomaniac and the world is there for me to do what I want, but it means we're supposed to look just as Adam Harishon. It was clear that he was the only one of his kind. And therefore, that means he had a unique task in the world to do. So too, each of us, even though there are billions of us on the planet, but every human being is unique. And because of that, there is a world which is waiting for you. And as long as Hashem sees fit to keep you alive, that's always true. And you need that to feel the importance of what you're doing. And he says, that will enable you to attack things with strength, to be azkanamer, bold as the leopard, gibor kari, all those fine animals that we saw. And that's the opposite of a person that's very lowly and very submissive. He says also, shiflut, lowliness, submissiveness, isn't an absolute good. He says it could be that that will hold you back in your avodah Hashem, and once you tilt too much towards that, you get to what he calls Hayush Hanora Chasushom Shagoromakol. You get to that despair, right? Yush and the breast of Swarim, that's the bad word. Right? It's for a person to give up. And you say, What's gonna what can I do? Who am I? What am I? He says that is worth worse than everything. He doesn't use that phrase lightly. So he says, therefore, both of these, when they're used right. They're great. When they're not used right, they're bad. So we have a Mitzorah. He was a Gasruach. He was arrogant. He got a Nega. And he now went through a period of Tikkun, of suffering, of embarrassment. 
And that lowered him really low. Really low. He says even the very form of the disease, which could be a very visible skin disease, Chazal say, a person who's afflicted with boils, he ends up feeling very low psychologically. Right? It's something which is very, very hard for, even if a person's not vain, but to have their appearance altered like that in that way. So he says, now that he had to come down here for emergency treatment, but this is not the way in which he can be living a life as an Oved Hashem remaining there. You need Simcha. You have to be Oved Hashem b'Simcha. You should only daven, it says, l'itpalel mitoch simcha, ena shechina shruya, el mitoch simcha. Okay, so all of this, this is what he needs. Now, how does it work? He says, you got to realize that even though this operation we did with the Mitzvah was important, the result is not the ideal result. What is this idea, he says, of kni'ah? of submission, of lowliness. He says, what happens here with the Mitzorah, so it's true, it breaks his arrogance, but it doesn't bring him to the positive kniah. What should the positive type of submission be that a person has, the positive lowliness? He says, the Rambam describes it to us. In Hilchaz Yisori HaTorah. When a person looks deeply, at the amazing creations of Hashem's world. And I always give a Marim Mokom, if you look in the first chapter of the Chazanish, the Sefer, Amunu Bitochan, he just goes through the human body. And just how awesome the different systems of the human body are. And you look at this and you see Hashem's Chochma, which is endless. And this brings to the person a sense of awe. Right? You get this feeling of who am I, what am I before Hashem. So he says, therefore, that is the proper hachna. That's not what a guy gets by having everyone laugh at him and throwing him out in the thing and make him wear dirty clothes. He says, so therefore, his shiflut, his lowliness needs to be fixed. It needs a tikkun. We fixed his gasut, we fixed his arrogance, but now we need to fix this. He says, because how do I know that this sense that he has of lowliness and humility is not the real thing? He says, there's a great line, Hirak machmat zulato The reason he feels so bad is because he's been singled out. Everybody else is going to work. Everybody else doesn't have these weird things on their skin. Everybody else isn't getting looked at and laughed at. And therefore, he pities himself. He feels miserable. He feels lowly. said, that's not considered anything. That's not a mila, right? You ended up there because we took you down from your gossip. But that is not someplace we wanted you to be. If everybody suddenly sprouted saras and had to do that, he'd be fine. <laughs> he would be okay. It's a very important insult. He says the proper sense of humility before Hashem is because you see yourself and the entire universe as Ephes Ba'ayin before Hashem. 
we are all before Hashem, right? Almost nothing to consider. He says, this is the proper submission. And this is not a contradiction to a person having the strength and the self-esteem of Because, right, if you have the creator of this amazing universe, and I am this tiny, tiny creature that I am, but Hashem spoke to me, and Hashem created me as a unique individual, and Hashem gave me guidance as to what I'm supposed to do in the world to bring the world to its purpose, that is incredibly empowering. That is incredibly joyful without making you arrogant. Okay, that is the way it's supposed to go. So he says, this is why we need the Ezov and the Tolat. He says, the reason we bring those two parts of the formula. He says, Tolat atzmit zulato. He says, a worm means, why am I low? Look down, I'm low. Meaning, that's just where I am. That's atzmit. It's not by looking at anyone else and everyone else there. Okay, now we need the eight eres in there to bring you up. That represents the positive form of, so to speak, gaiva. The shnitolat also, he says, is represented in the form of dam. The dai comes from the blood of the tolat. Blood represents the nefesh, the vital force, the ratzon, meaning you're supposed to be combining that. So let's look at our three ingredients now. Ezov, lowliness. The tolat is even lower than that, but the tolat is the dam, the erez is there, and you would wrap them all up into one bundle, okay, in the process of the tahara of the mitzvah. So only by having these things together, he says, the ezov itself would be too much. Unless you have the life force and you have the ability to get up from it. So that is one approach that Shem Shmuel has to this mix of ingredients here in Parashat Mitzvah. And it's very important because there are times in different settings in which a person brings another person down. You have to be very, very careful before you do that. But sometimes, for whatever reason, a person is demoted a position, whether in the army or in a company or something like that. A child is punished in school. All sorts of things that can really make a person feel down. And you have to realize that combined with that, the same time has to be building up, even more so, to make sure that it doesn't go into the negative. So many people sometimes think that you cured somebody by crushing them. That isn't a cure, right? That isn't, you need the combination of all the things, all the three, okay? Now, he tells us another thing, that this person who spoke Lashon Hara and was arrogant, right? the Balei Lashon who are arrogant, once we bring him down okay, to that extent, he says he may miss one of the most important things he's supposed to be doing as a tikkun and as a reverse. There's a Zara Kodosh that I shook when I saw it. I guess you can join me in shaking. It's very hard to know how to implement it. But this is what it says. Talking about these parshas of the Tzarat of Loshon Hari, he says, Kama de unsha de haibar nash, begin mila bisho. Just as we see the huge punishment which is here for a person, for Loshon Hara, 
כך אנשין בגין מילה טובה דקאוסי ליודה ויוכל מלמלו לו ולא מילה. So too a person is punished for good words that you had the ability to say and you didn't say. Okay, remember, Shlomo HaMelech taught us, מובס וחיים ביד הלושן. So we always focus on the מובס ביד הלושן, right? That they have all these stories, one לושן הרה can kill someone, can cause them to lose their job, lose their family, lose their, everything is true. So therefore, a person might end up drawing back too much and not realizing that your words bring life. Victor Miller pointed out such a beautiful word in Lashon HaKodesh, le'oded. Le'oded means to make somebody more. It's from Lashon of Od. So he says, a person, huh? Od, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like intuitively, people say sometimes, he said something to me, made me feel like a million bucks. That's what a person means when they say that. So, he says, if you have the ability to do that, right, and, the, and it's fascinating, Chazal say that the idea of saying kind words is greater than giving somebody money, than the mitzvah of tzedakah with money. Right? That's why they say there's more schar when a poor person comes to you and you give him a penny, but you also give him some words of kindness and consolement or something, that you actually get more reward for the words. And the reason for this is that words are begufo shaladam. Words actually change the essence of the person. It's not just the money he has or doesn't have, etc. Right? That's uh, why Chazal say that onoas devarim, if you say something that hurts someone, right? and, and that's viewed to, in parallel, we use the word ono for overcharging, and we use the word ono for saying words that are hurtful to someone. Because... Those words take away from the person. The problem is, mamon nitan lehishavon. You can do tshuva and pay the guy back the money. But you've said these things to him, it's very hard to reverse that process. And they also say, zebe gufo vezebe mamono. Ona'a of dvarim is in his essence, in the actual person himself. The other is the money. Again, it's a criminal thing, but it's less. So here the opposite. Right, to be able to give words, and they also say that aniim and ashirim need kind words. A rich person, money, he doesn't need. Everybody needs words of encouragement. Everybody needs words that make them feel better. The biggest millionaire has his anxiety closet and has his things. Part of it is, I know some people, sometimes when they're very wealthy, they can't believe that anyone actually really likes them or wants to be with them or talk to them, that the only reason that they want to is because of the money. I, I know people who are plagued by that. It's very hard. It's very lonely. You know, somebody smiling with you, laughing at you, wanting to do something for you, it's just because of my money. They don't care about me. If there's a way in which you can transmit to that person and I like you, that I care about you, and it's not about your money, that's a tremendous gift. The person's hungry for it, and you can give it. What's interesting then is that it gives us the following possibility. This hit me once. I don't know if you do the same weird things I do, but when you see a lottery with a big jackpot, so you start to imagine what you would do with the jackpot. Right. All sorts of your fantasy things, $250 million, okay, you know, how you're dishing it out, what you're doing. Maybe you didn't even buy a ticket, okay? But, Lamaisa, you didn't win, you didn't win, you're not doing anything. But everybody is a millionaire in terms of words, meaning you can, 
right? You thought you were going to build this institution and help this person. You can still do it. You can still help. You can do it every day. You can do it to every type of person with the mouth. And if a person is too shafel, if a person got smashed, you and your big mouth, look at what you said about people. Look at how you trashed them. Look at how you insulted them. Okay? Time to keep your mouth closed. And the person then will miss this entire part of his life and even be held accountable for it. That's what we must be sure to repair, that his shiflut, that his lowliness, doesn't get down to that extent. I will just share with you a very cute word for Pesach that um, it's brought in the, I think it was the Rachman Strifka Rebbe, who was the first one who said it, the old Talna Rebbe used to say it over. In the Simonim of the Seder, we have Karpats, Karpas Yachatz Magid. So they said, Karpas is Rashi Tevos. Klal Rishon Pesagur. Rule number one, Mouth is closed. Yachatz magid, if you have to say something, just say half of it. Okay, meaning be selective with your words. That for sure we want the person to learn through his process of being a mitzvah, but not to close the tap. Okay, you have to have these things together, and that means you have to be brave and you have to be strong. To talk to another person is something that requires a lot of omits. It requires a lot of strength, a lot of boldness. Some people have it, some people don't. Some people who are very successful in life, but they're petrified to speak to a stranger. You know, and, and with that, you miss many things. I'll just give an example of one of the things that, that you can do. If there's anything you bought in a, in a place, in a store, there's a certain place I got pitas. You know, and I mentioned to the guy, I said, you know, your pitas are like better than, than the usual ones. And he was on fire. You know why? He says, you know how early I get up to make those pitas? Fresh every day. It's at 4.30 in the morning I'm making the dough. That's not like these things you get in the supermarket. And you're so happy that somebody noticed. It seems like a small thing, but these things can make a huge difference. So he says, the Mila Tava, he says, we have to be afraid that he's not going to say it, Mahmat Shiflut Rucho, because of the lowliness. And that is what the Tahara is happening. The mix of the Eitz Erez and the Ezov and the Shnitolat is what can help the person be the way they're supposed to be. Okay, now, one uh, tie-in to Pesach, obviously, is just the fact of preparing your mouth. Right? The Swarim point out that the only mitzvah, the raisa that we have nowadays that we can fulfill with eating is matzah. Okay, and this is the equipment which you can use. Right? So the mitzvah is happening with your, with your mouth. So the more that mouth can be a kli of kedusha the more a person is able to connect to it. But let's turn back now to what happened on that first Pesach Mitzrayim where Ezov came into play again. There, as he pointed out, you didn't have the Eitzaravs and the Shnitolat, you just had Ezov. You also used an Agudat Ezov. The Ezov was in a bundle there. Here, it was just a piece, a stem of Ezov. So he explains the following. He tells us, sorry. He says, Am Yisrael at that time were so low, right? At that point, you can get to a point of lowness that you can't even feel anything. Okay, we'll get to in a second just some stories of after the Holocaust. But that, that was an extent sometime that people reached. In other words, he said they had 
this was beyond the idea of any arrogance whatsoever. That wasn't their parsha. Their parsha was, he said, This was part and parcel of Gulat Mitzrayim. Gulat Mitzrayim wasn't simply transporting people from place A to place B. You had to bring these people back to life again. You had to remind these people who they are. So he said, and once again, they need to be able to come from that shiflut in the wrong place and to be able to prepare themselves. Look what they had to do. They had to go to receive the Torah. They needed the strength. He says, they were in the state of basar hamet she'eno margish. Dead flesh feels nothing. Okay, so he says, therefore, that they were already starting to prepare for Matan Torah and it was transmitting to them the Aguda. Each person in themselves, what am I? I'm a shattered shadow of a human being. These are people whose parents and grandparents were slaves. Right? What am I? Who am I? Realizing that you're part of Am Yisrael, the Aguda, that even though you're low, when you have that Aguda of Ezov, and what was done with it? It was dipped in the blood of the Korban Pesach, and that was put on the doorposts and on the lintel, they call it. So here's the Sefer, Avodah Savrom, it was called. Somebody from the previous generation, he wrote it based a lot on the Priya Aretz of Menachem Mendel Vitebsk. So he said like this, he says, unlike the Tzarat, he said, Am Yisrael were in a state that they were shvelim ba'atzmam, they were so low here, gishu she'inam mutzlachim leklum, they felt they wouldn't be good for anything, ve'ein ha'kodesh baruch hu rotzeh bahem uva'avodatam. And Hashem doesn't want them. Now again, if you remember, a couple months back, we brought this amazing quote from the Sefer Orach HaChaim, who was the Talmud of the Maggid of Mezrich, and it sounds like, you know, how can they feel that? Look at what Hashem did for them. Look at ten makos. Right? Look at all these things. What do you mean? Oh, you know, we can't do any Avodah Hashem. We're too nothing. We're too this. So he said that they felt that the only reason Hashem was doing these things was because he promised the Avot. And if he let them sit there any longer, they would disappear. So it's not because we're worth anything. Right? It's as if, you know, somebody is discovered by some relative. Right? Suddenly you get a letter. There's a great uncle you never knew of or something like this. Oh, that's right. So he comes and he takes a look at you and he says, why do you dress like that? Um, I, I'm in yeshiva. You're kidding me. That's what happened to my this, this, this. I go, this, you know, it'll be good for nothing in life. Right, what are you going to do? All right, but anyway, you're my relative. I got to give you some money. Something <laughs> like this. Right, doesn't feel so good. You say, he hates me. Right, buddy. Yeah, blood is blood, family is family, something he feels he has to give it to me. That's what Amisul could have been feeling there. So he says, and they had to face a lot. They had to go out of Mitzrayim and to get there. So therefore, he says, Hashem commanded them to take the Agudat Ezov, which is lowliness that needs to be fixed, and to put it in the dam, and to put that on the Mashkov, and then to leave the Ezov. We don't do that anymore. Even when the carbon Pesach was brought, right? The carbon Pesach was brought for centuries. There was no Agudate Zovendam. That wasn't done in Yerushalayim, not in any of the places. What that means is, Shiavodet Hashem Nefesh. 
ולא ישים לב לרשת היצר שצד בו את נשמתו, ויאמין כי הקדוש ברוך הוא לא יעזבנו בידו. says you have to not pay attention to it. If there is what for you to do, that means Hashem wants you and wants your avoda. And if you do an avoda which is difficult, right, then that is more precious to Hashem than anything. So it's true, it's hard for you to do the things that you do. But that's exactly your greatness. It's interesting, um, Spitzer reminded me last week, uh, Shimon Spitzer, some people know him here, this amazing Yismach Moshe, the Yismach Moshe was the Rebbe of Uhul in Hungary. He said that people or Choser B'Tshuva don't need any Yisurim to be Mechaper for the Averis. Because he says, there's nothing more Yisurim in the world than changing a habit and changing a lifestyle. So he says, by the very fact that they're doing that, that's all the Yisurim that they need. That's, that's, that's terrible, Yisurim. That's, that's torturous. For a person to change and to do and to reverse and to do differently, he said, that's all. That's all. No other Yisurim. Mesirut Nefesh. And Mesirut Nefesh is there for everyone. It means to try to do and to try to go that extra mile that you can. So to finish, I just wanted to read to you a little bit about a somewhat parallel state. I guess uh, if you can uh, imagine, and we can't imagine after the camps, so many people were in that state of the basar hamet, the dead flesh that couldn't feel anything. Right? They, they couldn't feel anything. It was, uh, they, they often, they didn't even want to live when they were liberated. That's what's described here from eyewitnesses from people who were there. So first of all, they just describe a Seder night that the Kloisenberger Rebbe managed to arrange in the camp. Okay, there are a few such stories. And it's a fascinating question which helps you understand the whole concept of freedom for Yitzhak Mitzrayim. How can people be sitting there in a concentration camp waiting for the guards to come in and kill you and saying, you know, Ata, ata, b'nei charin, b'nei charin. <laughs> what b'nei charin? But the B'nei Chorin is the freedom to be able to be an Eved Hashem. And that they're able to do in whatever circumstances, without whatever they have or not. So he says, this is the Leil Seder they made. They had had a miraculous gift. The Allies had bombed some uh, railway cars. And as the prisoners were like clearing up, they were assigned to clear up the mess from this, they found wheat grains. So they stuffed away as many as they could. And they said they ground them by hand using small rocks, right? Night after night, they would sit there after a day of slave labor, turning these things into whatever type of flour that they could. And then to bake them was another thing, because this was toward the end of the war. The Allies were bombing. It was supposed to be total blackout at night. The only time they could bake would be at night. Any spark would be viewed as signaling the Allies. They did this tiny, tiny bit of kosher matzahs. Okay, so that they would be able to have a, a little bit of matzah. I'll tell you another story about that in a second. So he said, this was the Leila Seder. That night they got together, he said, a few minyonim who, uh, and a few rabbonim who were there. And uh, there was one man, he said, Rav Meir Hershkowitz, who was the block altester. That was in a prison block they made someone, you know, the elder, the person who was in charge, the boss. The Kloisenberger Rebbe davened before the Omud. It describes his heartfelt davening. And then there was the table, so to speak. Right? They put it in quotes. Sitting next to him was the Vishiva Rebbe. He said it was Rebaran Teitelbaum from the town of Nirbater in Hungary. Rebbe Gottlieb, the Avbasin of Mishkoltz. 
The Rebbe said, by heart, crying, right? He didn't have arbacosis. Mara, he said, they were Yotze, Mara all year. And they took up their little bit of matzah, and they were so happy with it. And he was saying all sorts of words of encouragement and strength. And that man who was in charge of the block said that he invited to sneak in the person who was in charge of the block next door. He said this was a Jew from Poland who had no connection to Judaism. And after seeing that, he, he stood up and he said, I have to tell you, he says, if I hadn't seen what's happening here with my own eyes, I would never have believed that anyone would tell me this. Under the noses of the Germans, with death in front of your faces, that you're celebrating the Pesach like this, is, is remarkable. Okay, meaning the ability to be that Eitz Erez at a time of the lowest Ezovan Tolat is something. I just want to share with you a story. I don't know why I always found this story so moving. Maybe somebody can analyze me someday and figure out. There's, there's a series of books they brought out that they called Holocaust Diaries. Right? Uh, many such projects existed. As survivors were getting older, people said, you've got to interview these people. You've got to have them tell their stories. You've got to write them down. So this was the story of a man who had been a printer before the war. At one point, the Nazis in his camp were coming around asking who knew how to print. So he raised his hand. They took him and some others away to a secret camp someplace else where they were assigned to print counterfeit money. That was the title he gave his book, Counterfeit Lives. The Germans had a few reasons to do this. Number one, you can damage your enemy's economy by flooding their market with counterfeit bills. Also, they were seeing that they may need to run it. They were trying to prepare high-quality counterfeit to use if they had to get out. And that was, that was his camp. So he said, one day they were moving the camp from one place to another. Again, packed them into freight cars. And suddenly they saw on the floor there were wheat grains. Apparently before they had been used to transport wheat. So our first impulse, he said, was to eat them. You would eat anything that you could. But then somebody said, you know what? It's almost Pesach. Maybe if we save them, maybe somehow we can make matzah. So when they got to their next camp and set up, they hid their little stash of wheat grains. And one night they had a discussion about what to do. So they said, listen, it's virtually impossible to do this without the Nazis seeing or telling. So we have to somehow get permission. So they turned to the man who wrote the book. They said, you're the top printer here. You get along with the commandant. He respects your professional abilities with the printing. You should ask him if we can bake matzah. So the man said, I told him, I also want matzah. But even though he seems to like my work, he's a Nazi. And if you ask the wrong question, he can just take his gun and can shoot you right there. And according to Allah, that's pikuach nefesh. The mitzvah's asay of matzah is not doche pikuach nefesh. And then he went to sleep, I don't know if it was that night or a night soon afterwards, and he had a dream. He said before the war, his family were chassidim of the Tefer Shlom of Radomsk. And in the dream, he saw himself going into the Rebbe's office with his father. And he said, but his father didn't come in with him. He said that was how somehow he knew inside his father was no longer alive. They'd been separated. And in the dream, the Rebbe asks him, he says, how, how are things where you are? How's your Yiddishkeit? Are you able to daven? Are you able to do mitzvahs? 
And he told him, Rebbe, you know, can't do much. We do what we can. He said, while I'm here, I wanted to ask you a question. We had this debate. They want me to ask the commandant for permission to bake matzahs. And I told him, I can't speak Ruach Nefesh. And the Rebbe said, your svara is right. It's, it's correct what you say. He says, but in one of the psukim by matzahs, it uses an expression, for your generations. Your father baked matzahs for me. You should bake matzahs this year. And he asked and he received that permission. Right, these were things that happened, things of tremendous freedom. So what happened when they were released, though, is what we want to look at for our comparison. And this is what we're finishing with. He says, when people came out, the gates opened. So first of all, people jumped on the food that the Red Cross and the American Army brought. And uh, to the extent that many of them died from sickness, they, they didn't know the right food to bring people who'd been starving for so long. And, um, and it, it killed them. The, the people were starting to argue among themselves and such. And some people just didn't want to do anything. Some felt that they should have died. They didn't have time during the camps themselves to think about everything that had been lost, about what their past was and what their future could possibly be. And he said, here, the Rebbe, who again had lost his wife and 11 children, he says, at these times, his light started to shine. At the time in which everyone was broken and everything seemed dark, it says that he rose up and he was able to bring this life back to them. He said he was able to show them this example and, and they described him, he was skin and bones. He was shaking, right? But he says, I'm a Jew and I have life. We have to live, we have to do, we have to build. And piece by piece, from burying the dead to starting schools, to arranging marriages, right, to all these different things, he moved it on and he caused it to come up. In the middle of this period that he was rebuilding, he got typhus. Okay, typhus was very common then. And he got stuck into a kind of hospital to try to recover from typhus. He was in there for months, incredibly weak. So there was a young man who was in there with him. And he said, he said, I was there right next to the Rebbe. He said he used to lend me his tefillin every day. And he says, we used to try to, to he couldn't, the Rebbe couldn't even learn much. He was so sick. But he would read from a chumash, right? He would try to read all the Shtayim Mikra Targum he missed during the years of the war to catch up. And he would sit there with me Right? And on Shabbos, he would make, so to, speech, so to speak, kind of a tish, right? And in their room, and he would try to sing Zemiras and say Divrei Torah. He said, this example is what brought so many people back to life. So the idea that we all have to do it for all of us, and that's why we have Pesach every year. Every year we need to remember this. Every year we need to come back to life. There's the concept of Or HaChoser, Arachoser is when you're going through a dark tunnel, toward the end of the tunnel, while you're still in there, you can see. That's because of the light that's coming in from outside the tunnel. Am Yisrael, in every tunnel that they're in, 
is always heading toward light. And there are ways to be able to tap into that light. Pesach is a night of light. It's that night which is a yom. We say hallo at that night. It's one in which we can soak up the light of the fact that the same destiny that we were heading for when we left Mitzrayim is the same destiny that we're heading for now. And we're still going on that journey and we still have our purpose and that's supposed to enliven us and have us have that proper mix of the humility and the self-esteem and the energy and the rutzon to be who we're supposed to be every year. So wishing everyone, at least uh, so far, right, a chag kosher v'sameach, the planning for it. Kosher and sameach is a challenging combination to have, right? Right, sometimes we need to, we need to emphasize that part first. And uh, yeah, but next week hopefully we'll do a Pesach special of some kind. I hope so. I hope.